We're going to continue our series on stewardship, and we're going to talk about stewardship of the physical body and then stewardship of the spiritual. We're going to look at two passages of Scripture and kind of weave them together. Turn with me over to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. <clears throat> we're going to look at verses 7 through 9, and then we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 26 through 27. The title of the message is Stewardship, Discipline of the Physical and Spiritual. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline, verse 8, is only of little profit. Godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for both the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. 1 Corinthians 9, 26 through 27. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he says, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Lord, help us, we study. We're called to steward over our bodies. We're called to steward over our spiritual life. <clears throat> and Paul does what he can to try to make it very plain to Timothy about what godly discipline looks like. And he tries to juxtapose godly discipline against bodily discipline. But in explaining bodily discipline, he gives us some clues about how important it is to exert this kind of discipline, this kind of vigilance in our own lives. He says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Bodily discipline has little benefit. But godliness is profitable in all things because it provides benefit both in this life and the life to come. The word little, when he talks about bodily discipline, in the Greek is the word oligos, which also is translated temporary. And I think would be a good word in English to use here because Paul is talking about the difference between bodily discipline and spiritual or godly disciplines and that godly disciplines not only benefit us here but later. They have long-term benefit, immortal benefit to us, that after we pass from here, we still benefit from those things in glory. But bodily discipline really doesn't have much impact there. We get a new body there. But we need the discipline that it provides and the benefit here because if we do things well with our physical bodies, then we don't have to suffer a whole lot in the areas of our health. And so we need to exert some benefit. Whatever little benefit, whatever temporary benefit Paul is talking about to Timothy, I need it all. I need all the temporary benefit physical discipline is going to give me. And I need that which spiritual or godly discipline is going to give me. And so we're going to talk about both of those things today with respect to physical. We're going to talk about eating, exercise, and ethics. Now, I've chosen ethics as a word 
but it's really a synonym to morality. Though ex ethics deals more with systemic issues, corporate issues, um, political things, and morality deals more with a personal life. But because I had eating and exercise, I needed an E. <laughs> so I chose ethics. And this part of the message then segues into the next part, which talks about our spiritual responsibility. And those five things that I want to speak to you today on spiritual responsibility are study, reading your Bible, prayer, giving, our responsibility to develop character in our life, and then stewarding over the ministry that God gives us. So let's talk about the first thing, eating. Now, may I preface my sermon by saying, this is not a fun sermon. All of you are thinking right now, wait a minute. I'm ready to go to lunch. And if he's going to mess up my menu, I think it's time for me to go right now. Eating is an important part of maintaining our health so that we can be the kind of people God wants us to be so we can minister the way he wants us to minister. Do you know God thought it was so important to help the people, his people, Israel, eat right, that he gave them a menu. He gave, he said, eat off this menu, please. This is what I want you to eat. Don't eat anything else but what I give you right here. That's the way God was thinking. He wasn't just about their spiritual lives. He thought, let me help them physically because they're going to put things in their body that are actually going to be detrimental to their well-being. And I care about them as a whole person. I'm not just interested in the physical, in the, in the spiritual. I'm interested in the physical. So he gave them a diet, a menu. In Leviticus chapter 11, he said, you can't eat things, don't eat things that don't divide the hoof, when, when he's talking about mammals, don't eat things that don't divide the hoof and don't chew the cud. Well, it could be reptilian in its orientation, but all reptiles were off the list anyway. So had to chew the cud and divide the hoof. If it were a bird, it could not be a bird of prey or a scavenger. So it had to eat vegetable stuff, seeds and fruits. If it were fish, it had to have fins and scales. So eels were off the menu as well as lobster and shrimp. And if it were of the insect variety, which I know all of you crave, <laughs> it could only be crickets and locusts or grasshoppers. Everything else was off the menu. You couldn't touch it. You couldn't eat it. And God said, I'm relegating this to you because I love you. Now, it did have spiritual implication that if you actually ate something that was off the menu, then you became unclean because you were eating something that was, that was set aside as being unclean. With us today, that doesn't have anything to do with us. It's only, only the physical that, that impacts our life. When God began to describe clean and unclean, that was a picture, kind of a shadow and a type of, of what he wanted to produce in the spiritual for us so we would know the distinctions between right and wrong, what was best, what was good, and what was bad. But with respect to just being healthy, you can't get more healthy than the kosher diet that God gave in Scripture. You just can't. It's really, really good. Now, we might mess it up with all of our chemicals and antibiotics and steroids and all that stuff, but I just, I just keep telling God, I can only go to the grocery store. That's all I can do. I'm not a shepherd. I'm not a farmer. So somebody's going to have to produce all the stuff I, I eat. So I'll go to the best grocery store I can find, but that's all I can do, God. I can't go out and become a hermit and just live on a commune someplace and start doing stuff. I can't do that. So you're going to have to provide. These farmers are going to have to work it well. But when they don't, 
Your grace is going to have to help me. Where I cannot provide, that's where I trust you. Now, I do not eat a kosher diet, but I eat healthy. And it doesn't mean I don't stray. I love sweets. Unapologetically, I love sweets. Sugar and me are friends. And I'm not looking to break that friendship ever. Ever. I did it for one whole year. 2011. Did not have any sugar. No, no desserts, no candy bars, no ice cream, no sugar at all. And it was a good year, but I wasn't happy. Very healthy, but was not happy. Ever, 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 ever. The entire year. But I've gone back to some things in moderation. But, and I'm going to use most of the examples today for my own life because I just know about me. It's not that bread is so great. It's just that these are things I've learned that have allowed me to maintain my health for your benefit. I, I don't need to accomplish another thing on the planet. Not for my own soul stroking. I've already done much more than I ever thought possible. God has eked out of me. He has squoze juice out of me I didn't know I had. And I, yes, yeah, squoze. I said it. <laughs> he has squeezed more juice out of me than I thought I had. And I am so grateful I don't know what to do. If I died today, I would be a happy man. Because he has done more than I ever thought possible. So I'm not here for me. I'm here for you. I'm here for my kids. I'm here for the next generation. That's the only reason I remain on the planet. And so I've got to maintain my physical stamina so I can be what I need to be for you. So I do some things intentionally so that I can be what I need to be. I realize that there are forces in this world that are going the wrong way and militating against our health. There's disease just when you breathe. There's stuff all out there. Your immune system is working right now. Even though you're not, you may not be ill, it's working. And because it's working, you aren't. It's fighting off all kinds of stuff in your body right now. And the devil, he's out there and doesn't like you. And so he wants to throw stuff on you on the regular and try to get you sick and knock you out of the game. And so there are a lot of forces out there. It's not always cause and effect. This should not be interpreted that somehow if you get sick and wind up in the hospital that you did something wrong way back when. Not saying that, but I do know this, that if I do eat a whole lot of ribs every day for the rest of my life, I will have a closer walk with thee. <laughs> I'll get to him in a hurry much quicker than if I had not. And so I've chosen to make sure that my diet is as healthy as I can make it be so that I can be what I need to be while I'm here because I need while I'm here the little bit of profit that bodily discipline can provide me. I need that temporary benefit. So my breakfast is usually fruits and nuts. I eat a lot of vegetables, I, I, raw food, I, lots of legumes. That, that's what I do. And some of it I don't even like. But I eat it because I want to be something that I'm not yet. And when I say not yet, it's not that I'm not satisfied with where I am. I realize I, I plan to be here for another 40, 50 years. And when I'm 80, I want to feel like I'm, I'm feeling right now at 50. Because right now at 53, I feel like I'm 28. I really do. I go to the doctor. I get a checkup every year. My blood pressure is perfect, 117 over 79. My life and cholesterol is good. My life is in balance. I, I have stress factors that are off the charts, but I'm not stressed. They gave me an EKG 18 months ago and said, you got the heart of like a 28-year-old. I said, yes. 
And all the doctors say, what do you do? Is, is your life one of ease? Do you have a yacht and just sail the world? I said, no, I pastor a church. No. That's a major stress builder. Eh. How many kids you got? Seven. No. That's a major stress builder. Literally, my physicians have said we've never seen anybody that age who's as healthy as you. I said, well, I'm grateful to God. I really am. And I begin to testify and let them know why I do what I do. So it becomes a moment where I can preach the gospel to my physicians. But my goal is to make sure that even in the midst of all the stuff that's, that's intentionally coming wrong in my life, whether it be stuff that I breathe or the enemy trying to attack me, I do not compound it through my own intentional mistakes. By, by eating stuff a lot wrong and then having to be in a hospital that did, did relate to cause and effect. I don't want to be there. I want to make sure that I'm doing what I can to be the kind of person I need to be for you and my family and my community when I am 80. Now, right now, I'm 53 and I feel 28. I can't do what I used to do at 28, but I feel it. But because I wasn't a great athlete, the drop-off wasn't that great. So I'm close. <laughs> I'm close to what I could do at 28. But I eat well. Now, it doesn't mean that I, 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 I don't enjoy my sweets. And, and I came by it honestly, my love of sugar. My mama was a diabetic. My daddy was a dentist. Are you feeling me? I grew up with saccharin, that nasty aftertaste sweetener. And my daddy wouldn't bring sugar in the house, no candy bars, nothing. He was my football coach in the seventh grade. And, and, and the league required that every team sell candy bars door to door to provide for the, 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 the league because of the registration costs just didn't do it. And my daddy went to the league and said, I'm not having my team sell candy. The league said, why not? He said, I'm a dentist. It's a conflict of interest. I can't go out and sell candy and then people then eat it, then need me more. I can't do that. This was, he was a volunteer. They fired him. <laughs> they fired my dad as a volunteer coach. That's how committed he was to not having sugar in the house. I love sugar. <laughs> but I know that if I eat it, I will blow up. I'll get big and fat, and I won't be able to be what I need to be for everybody else. So I, I mitigate it. I ration it. I parse it out for me. And every bite of coconut cake from Honey Bake Ham is a sweet savor to me. It is a special moment every time I eat sweets because I don't do it very often. And it's, it's everybody move aside in my house. Let me have my moment with my peach cobbler. This is the way I live, and I'm happy about it. I've chosen to make sacrifices because I want to be something I, I need to be later, but I'm not yet, and I'm planning for the future. Secondly, exercise. I really don't like exercise. One of my joys in expectation and getting to heaven is that there will not be a treadmill there, <laughs> not one not one. I hate exercise. Now, some people really enjoy it. But the kind of exercise I do is just flat painful. You can't read a book the, what, the way I do what I do. 
if you know anything about exercise, I burn between seven and 800 calories in an hour. And I, I, I'm dripping sweat. And I jump rope, I do rowing machine, I treadmill, I run up and down my stairs, I lift, I do push-ups, pull-ups, you name it, I do it. I vary my exercises so that my body doesn't become used to one thing and then become extra strong in an area and weak in another. So I do a lot of different stuff to keep myself in balance and I push myself regularly. I don't involve myself in many competitive activities with, with other people because uh, if I go out and play basketball, I realize that I will try to do something that I can't. And I will pop something and I, I will strain something or I will hit something and I, then I can't work out for two weeks. And so I've chosen not, not to go that. But even if I went out and, and, and didn't hurt myself, I, I wouldn't be successful because I'm not good at some of the stuff that's that requires other people. And so I might not feel near as happy with me when I lose on a regular basis. But I do know this. I can beat me. I don't have a problem beating me. But I have to press to beat me on a regular basis. And so I, I take whatever barrier I come up to and intentionally work through that so that I'm upping my times or my reps or my weight on a regular basis. And as I go through things, and I'll cycle out of stuff and then come back to it in three or four months and go back through the process so it doesn't get mundane and my muscles don't get used to stuff, I do this because I realize my life is crazy outside of my workout room. I got some pressures. They're not unusual, but they are pressures. I've got to provide for a family. I've got to help my every nation world, which is the organization where our church finds its home and affiliation. I've got to be what I need to be for you. I've got to be chaplain for the Redskins. And there's not a moment where I can use the excuse, I am too tired. I've got to be on all the time, ready at any moment to deliver a message or a word to somebody. That's not because I'm paid to do it, though I am. It's because I'm responsible before God to do it. And I don't want to wind up in a hospital, and I've got to have strength in order to accomplish my tasks with confidence and competency. So I work really hard in my workout room so this can be easy. So four sermons don't wipe me out every week. So life and my schedule don't weigh me down. I've got to work out like that. It's a specific workout designed to be the man I need to be for you with my physical strength. Paul says this. I work my body until I make it my slave. Lest after I preach to others. I myself will be disqualified. Now, in this passage throughout the entire chapter, he's speaking more of his spiritual qualifications than he is his physical. In the entire chapter, he, begin, he, he talks to the church at Corinth about how he becomes all things to all men, that he uses all of his energy to break through barriers so that he can preach the gospel to everybody who needs to hear it in whatever context they need to hear it. So if, if, if he needs to be more Greek-like to the Greeks, he becomes more Greek-like. If he needs to be more Jewish and take a vow where he shaves his head, which he did once, he'll do that in order that the Jews might listen to him on the basis of the vow he took and then springboard that into gospel presentation. He said, I do anything I can in order to minister this gospel. I make my body my slave to the ministry of the gospel so people can get born again. So that 
after I have preached to everybody else, I can tell my God, I sacrificed for them like you did. I'm not disqualified. I gave my life like you did for them. And he says this, I do this in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 9, that I might become a partaker of the gospel. So when you begin to live what you actually preach, you become a partaker in fellowship with the gospel. You don't just become a theologian. You don't just become a preacher. When you actually live what you believe, you now are partaking in it and you get the benefits therein that you are now telling everybody else that they should do. Are you listening to me? Paul says, I do this because I've got to live in integrity. I can't just tell folk to do it if I won't. He was a man. He says, I make my body my slave. My body, personally, is looking for an emancipation proclamation. I'm making my slave five days a week in exercise. Five days a week. And it is painful. But it allows me to be at ease here. God wants us to use whatever the little discipline that bodily discipline provides. He wants us to use it for the benefit of of preparing this gospel for others. And we need it. We need it. I beg you, eat right and work out. Do whatever you can. You may not be able to do what I do, but start someplace and begin on a path toward health. Now, you don't see a lot of people working out in the Bible because they walked every place. They walked it. I mean, it wasn't unusual for a man to walk five, six miles a day. That wasn't unusual. And so they didn't need generally to to work out because they were in shape constantly. Do the 10,000 step thing every day. That'll help you figure something out to be what you need to be for the people around you and to be an adequate servant of Almighty God and not find yourself sidelined by some debilitating disease or some sickness that you could have prevented. Lastly, ethics. And this bleeds over into the next thing, spiritual. We need to be people that are moral. And we need to have... a. We need to have a high standard of morality, not a mediocre standard of morality. Unfortunately, the body of Christ has adopted the world's standard. Immorality is barely immoral anymore. It's just the the order of the day. Folk live with one another and don't think a thing about it. It's okay. They think, there are people who tell me, I know things have changed. When I meet a couple and they talk to me and I, I begin to inquire about where they're from. So, oh, she lives with me. And there's no sense of, she lives with me. There's none of that. Oh, she lives with me. I say, oh, okay. Can we talk? Can we talk, please? Just come and sit down. I want to, I want to have a conversation with you. No sense of conviction. Zero. Because everybody does it. It is the standard of how you judge whether you should go on with somebody in relationship. Immorality is the order of the day. And that has laid waste the principles of purity. Nobody even talks about that anymore. And the Bible is very clear in 1 Corinthians 6. In Ephesians chapter 3. Also Galatians. Make no mistake and do not be deceived in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 11. 
and no immoral or impure man, covetous man who is an idolater, adulterous, homosexual, evil man has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. He said, don't get it twisted. I don't care what anybody else tells you. This is the truth. That doesn't mean that if you've made a mistake, somehow you're disqualified from inheritance in the kingdom. It does mean that if you are living like this, you are in danger of forfeiting your inheritance. Something is desperately wrong. Christians ought to be the ones that hold the standard the highest. The church at Corinth was amazing in power. Services off the chain. Folk getting healed. Prophecy flowing like a, a, a mighty river. But what they were doing on Sunday had nothing to do with what they were doing on Saturday night. And folks were sleeping with their father's wife. Are you kidding me? Paul said this kind of stuff doesn't even happen in the world. What's wrong with you? How can you as a church ordain and bless this? Immorality was running rampant in the church. Paul said this must stop. He was clear by saying first, do not be deceived. If you have any other thought than what I'm about to tell you, Paul says, you're out of your mind. You're not thinking right. Something's wrong in your theology. Don't be deceived. If you are immoral, if you are an adulterer, if you're involved in homosexuality as a lifestyle, you are not an inheritor of the kingdom. That does not mean you cannot be. If you repent, hope is there. You change your life, you can come right on in. But God wants us to understand his standards are high. He even says impure person. He's not even talking about just immoral. Impure. Living with thoughts that are wrong. Meditating on the wrong thing. Staying too much in the wrong place on the internet. Impurity. God wants our... Listen, our bodies in the same chapter in 1 Corinthians 6 are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In fact, he says our bodies are not made for immorality, but they are made for Almighty God. Let Him fill you rather than the other stuff. We can't be like this. You know, you know why prostitution is wrong? Well, there are a lot of reasons why prostitution is wrong. <laughs> Lots. Objectification of women. Paul says if you give yourself to a harlot, you become one with the one you're sleeping with. He said it's really bad. Lots. Of, you, you come lower. You don't bring her up. You get lower. It's horrible. And there are many other reasons. But one of the ones that people forget is that the guy who pays for the harlot pays too little. Pays too little. You see, there is this endemic standard around the world that when a, man, when a man gets the privilege of intimacy with his woman, that he should have already said, I do. There should be a huge price that has already been paid, and that is his life. I will be faithful to you, and you are the only woman with whom I will be for the rest of my days. There's a sense that that's the way marriage is supposed to be. Jacob was running from his brother Esau. And uh, Esau had thoughts of killing him. And so he had to run to his uncle Laban, which was about 120 miles north. And Laban had a beautiful daughter named Rachel. And uh, 
Jacob saw Rachel, took one look at her and said, I got to have her as my wife. She is amazing. She's drop-dead gorgeous. I want her. Now, the rule was that the man who desired to marry another man's daughter had to pay a thing called a bride price to the father to get the rights of securing this woman's hand in marriage. And the bride price was generally that which kind of showed how you were going to provide for in the future. And if she was a woman of high standing, you had to pay a higher price. Uh, Laban looked at Jacob, realized he didn't have any money. And, and Jacob said, well, I'll I, I tell you what I'll do. I'll, I'll give you seven years of labor for her. Seven years of labor. So let's take one year of labor, which is your annual salary, and multiply that by seven. That's what it costs for Jacob to secure Rachel's hand. Four, five hundred thousand dollars? That's a serious engagement ring, don't you think? <laughs> See, that's what we use today. We don't pay the father. We put something on her finger and say, I'm going to be yours. And this is, what, this is what I'm using to show how I'm going to provide for you. And it's always commensurate with the income level of the man who's giving it. So if Bill Gates gives his wife an engagement ring, anyway, what am I saying? If Bill Gates were to give his fiancée an engagement ring and it was a $1,500 thing bought at Zales, that woman would say, uh, thank you, you, thank you. Is there more? Because he has more to give. When a man says, I do, because the, the price that he paid is just indicative of the commitment he is supposed to make. When a man says, I do, his whole life is to be given to that woman. Everything he is. He said no to the other four billion ladies so that he can devote himself to her for the rest of his days. The problem with a man who pays for a prostitute is that he paid too little for the privilege of sleeping with her. It ought to cost him his life to do that. His life. Now, I'm not just preaching theology. When I got right with God, I was 20 years old. And um, I didn't get married until I was 25. During that period, I wasn't with another woman. Had a lot of friends. Wasn't with another woman. Ever. Found my wife. Oof, she was gorgeous. August of 85, I said I got to have her. By December of 86, we were married. During that entire time, didn't touch her. And when the preacher said, you may now kiss your bride, that was the first time I'd done it. Now, everybody looks at me and says, now, pastor, that's crazy. That is cr Nobody does that, pastor. That's crazy. I'll give it to you. That's crazy. But I like my crazy better than yours. I like my crazy better than your crazy. Because I don't have to repent of my crazy. I got a testimony about my crazy. I can instill courage in people with my crazy. With my crazy, folks are inspired to live better. I like my crazy better than your crazy. If I happen to be too extreme, it's for your benefit that you might know somebody who worked it right.
that it's actually possible to live in a high standard of morality. Somebody did it. And now I've got something I can hand to my children. So that when I tell them don't do it like this, they don't have to ask, Daddy, did you? Because they know by way of testimony. Yes, I did. Your mama and I did not kiss until we said I do. 27 years later, I'm faithful to my wife and don't want anybody else. I know it sounds crazy, but it works. How's yours going? How's your standard going? Ladies, if a man pays too little for the right of intimacy, I'm not quite sure what to say to y'all who are giving it away for free. You don't make that man pay at all. Hadn't paid with his life. I'm begging you, think more of yourself. Value yourself more. Well, how am I going to get a man? Believe God. And the dude you got, if he won't love you the way he should and hold you in high esteem until he gets the right and privilege before Almighty God to have intimacy with you, then you, he ain't the right guy. He's just not. And there are right men because uh, not only are we training them up here, but there are a bunch of other people I know that are doing it right. I'm begging you. I'm begging you. Think more highly of yourself. And gentlemen, have the courage to leave that woman chaste until you have paid the price of saying I do. Be that kind of man. If y'all are a couple here today and you're sitting there thinking he just messed up our life. <laughs> just messed up our life. The first thing you need to do upon exiting this thing is apologize to one another and get right. There is never a bad time to make a good decision. You might be a little late, but you can get right. Okay, let's move on to the spiritual things. By the way, <clears throat> no, let's just move on to the spiritual things. Five things. The word, prayer, giving, character, and ministry. Stay in this Bible regularly. Get in it and live in it. Make it a part of your routine, your everyday diet. It's the only way you're going to have your blueprint for life. It is the manual by which we live. It's not just for preachers. It's for you. It's God's love letter to you. Get in your Bible and read it every day. And if you don't know how, you don't know what it means, you get confused, there are a bunch of Bible studies out there in our lobby. Pick one up. It's going to help you systematically take you topically through the Bible and help you understand what it has to say. Secondly, pray. Pray. Learn to pray. And don't just make it a monologue. You, you all know people who, who talk too much, right? When, when you see them coming before they see you coming, what do you do with the people who... Is, is it kind of a hard left or a hard right? Which way do you go? <laughs> Don't tempt God to be that way with you. Prayer is not a monologue. It's a conversation. And that's why you need to read your Bible to understand what he sounds like. So that when he speaks to you, you will know what his voice is. But you've got to listen. 
You got to hold your ear in tune. Lord, what are you saying? That way you can pray his will rather than your own. Thirdly, giving. We shouldn't be people that are always trying to figure out how God can you bless my life. We should be people that are trying to figure out how can I be a blessing. Deciding to be distributors. Disciplining ourselves. Disciplining ourselves to be distributors of his resources. That when we get them, we're trying to figure out, Lord, okay, I have to be faithful with all the obligations I've got, but I want to be a giver. Help me to be a giver. Fourth, develop character. All those things that you find in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, meekness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Let those things be increasing in your life on a regular basis because there's no law against them. So when you feel like you run out of patience, take another bite of fruit. Fruit of the Spirit. You can have as much as you want. That whole passage there is harking back to when Adam and Eve were in the garden and that Paul is using agrarian language in order to convey truth. God told Adam and Eve, you can have as much fruit from any tree in the garden as you want. Just don't eat from that one. But every place else, knock yourself out. You want to have 20 apples in a day? Take 21. I don't care. I don't have a law against any of it. In the same way, when you run out of self-control, take another bite. You can have as much as you want. Find God. He will help you get more. Cultivate character in your life. And lastly, whatever ministry he's called you to do, fulfill it. Make sure you're able to go to your grave saying this, Lord, I did everything you wanted me to do. I didn't miss out on a thing. I may not have been as good as I should have been at it, but I really gave my all doing it. There may have been other people who were better at it than me, but I did the best I could. That's the way you want to go to your grave. Find out your ministry and fulfill it in God. Eat well, exercise, live morally, Make sure your body is a temple of Almighty God and let him reside there with confidence and don't try to figure out how in the world you can fulfill your own lust. And then practice these five disciplines. Whew. You'll be a monster spiritually, big, strong, powerful, healthy, and able to do the will of God for the benefit of others. Let's pray. Daddy, love you. Thank you for all your goodness and kindness. There really is nobody like you. I'm asking that you would empower us to be what we should be for the most.